G'day, mate. Welcome to episode 79 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. In this episode, I sit down with multiple world champion stand-up paddleboard athlete, Annabelle Anderson. Now, I was talking to Annabelle on the phone a couple of weeks ago about some strength training related stuff, and I was just thinking to myself, I need to be recording this because this would be an amazing podcast. So I threw it over to Annabelle. I said, would you come on the podcast and have a chat? She said yes, and here we are today. Now, I was trying to think of a way to sum up Annabelle for those that don't know her, and the only way I can think of describing her is just an absolute legend of stand-up paddleboarding and she is the first and only female athlete to ever have an outright win in a world cup race meaning that she bet all of the male competitors as well she has a huge list of wins to her name and is just an absolute phenomenal athlete. In this episode of the podcast, we talk about how she got her start, what she did in her early formidable years, how she approached her training from a physical perspective, from a mental perspective, and how she has shaped herself to become one of the most dominant athletes ever in the world of stand-up paddleboarding. So without further ado, let's get into it and i hope you enjoyed this interview with annabelle anderson welcome to the exponential performance podcast join sports scientist and performance coach maddie graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are um so yeah we can go anywhere you want today over to you uh we'll just um, we'll just have a chat yeah um it's it's an Actually, maybe it's kind of one of those things that we talk about, you know, that we have these periods of change and we have no idea what is going to come from something, but it's the showing up on the daily. Absolutely. And I think that's what uh, what today's going to be all about. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of has, it's, it's highly metaphorical, but uh, I can't think of anything more important right now than choosing to turn up on the daily absolutely absolutely put in the work yeah and and not even and putting in the work even though you may not know what the outcome may lead to absolutely trust trust the the process even though there's not much of a process potentially it's gonna happen yeah but then I think that's when it comes back to strength of basics and sound mm. fundamentals of approach to life, approach to your physical, mental, and emotional well-being, regardless of whether you're using it for athletic performance or performance in life in general. And are you showing up on the daily in your life, mm. regardless of what you're doing? Absolutely. No, I like the, it. The only thing right now is, the only constant right now is change. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a given, isn't it? Now, um, we haven't even started the podcast officially, but this is good stuff. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep okay. it in there, but I'm just going to do an official opening. Welcome, Go. Annabelle. How are you? Uh, great to have you on here. And uh, I will have done a little bit of an intro uh, to this previously before you started talking, but... I was trying to think, how do I introduce you? 
and I read for about three hours through all oh my your God. achievements and everything that you've done, and I, I can't quite sum it up. Apart from just overall legend of uh, stand-up paddleboarding, you've, there's not much you haven't done, uh, and if you've done it, you've probably won it as well. And um, the most winningest athlete of your era, mm. that is uh, in- incredible. And the thing that stands out to me the most was uh, beating some of the guys. You know, mm. winning, winning races overall. Now that I think is uh, potentially look from an outside perspective, n- knowing very little about mm. the sport of stand-up, but um, that there rings to me as one of the big ones. Is if you're winning races outright as a female, that there is huge testament to you. So that I think that maybe sums it up. But welcome, it's great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be on here and. You probably just pinpointed the one thing that was the carrot that I loved to chase. Uh, it wasn't about, uh, you know, who I was beating or what I was doing. It was how do I become the best version of myself to be able to put in performances that blow other people away but performances that were memorable Mm -hmm. and so that was always my benchmark that got and it happened really really accidentally and if I give some background and context to how I accidentally um, started beating boys it's very very... take us back take us back even (laughs) even very simple before you started beating the boys I'm sure everyone would be interested how do you get into this the way you did well if I look at when I first started beating boys it happened when I was ski racing Um, I couldn't ski slalom for shit I just could never quite dial the rhythm and it was when the shape of skis was changing. So this was in the this was in the nineties. Um that sounds a long, long time ago. But it really forced a massive change in technique and how you ski to ski. Um and it was down to where you pressured it, how you used your body and some people adapted and some people couldn't. I was one of those kids that I had no fear of speed. I was incredibly fit. I was incredibly strong for my size, but for some reason, I've never been one of those people that could get very, very fast um, staccato type rhythm, and that's where I really struggled. But for some reason, put me on a pair of GS skis mm. that had shape, and I could lay it right over. Now and we're then, talking. And that was when, and I understand forces, or I understood and had a really strong grasp of how to generate force, how to create it, how to harness it, and how to release it to generate speed. I also understood how my equipment was designed and how to put myself in the optimum position at a point in time to maximize the forces that could be derived. You know, Okay, so this is getting a little deep, but things like I didn't have a fear of the full line. Mm. I loved the full line and I loved speed. Unfortunately, I didn't have much of a respect for that red line. Often paid the price a little too often. Um, But I remember it was when I was, I think, 16. I was um, training at Mount Hutt because at 
kind of had the best program that um, would suit me for that winter. And I not only sconed the boys in dry land, um, <laughs> thankfully I had a very, very strong background as a middle distance runner, had a few uh, South Island records to my name and um, ran at national level. So I have to just, my phone is doing something weird. And so I would absolutely beat the boys in dryland. And I think it took a month on snow mm-hmm. for me to start beating them in GS and Super G. It happened, I can remember the first weekend it happened. And from that point onwards, I was relegated to traveling in the gear van with the coach. <laughs> uh, and it was literally a rolling joke of a boy's getting chicked today. Um, couldn't scare a lot of shit, but when it came to speed and feel and putting myself in the right position, I could harness what I had as an athlete. And I wasn't huge, I wasn't strong. And so, like anything, um, some sports, it's about technique and how you utilize what you've got rather than pure strength or pure force mm. or pure speed. And the same probably applied, or the same did apply, when it came to paddling. And you'll be familiar, very, very familiar with um, the concept of technique in relation to kayaking or to surf ski. Um, New Zealanders might know it, you know, in relationship to rowing because it's a very, very Mm -hmm. popular sport through uh, school-age athletes and um, in our Olympic program here. And it's not... Whoever is the strongest on an erg is not the strongest or fastest on the water. And there's this massive component of technique and feel. Mm. And that's why I relate that directly to learning from growing up with snow sport. Well, not growing up, but, you know, my teenage years with snow sports and huge amounts of video feedback. Mm. So then... It was really, again, like I said, accidental how I ended up beating boys in stand-up. It was accidental how I ended up doing it. Um, But long story short, I, in 2011, literally packed my life into a bag. I was living in London at the time. I had never, I hadn't done that quintessential Kiwi overseas experience, go traveling, and Timing is probably one of the most pivotal pivotal things that allows something to be a success or not. I'm a firm believer in. And I was in the right place at the right time at the development of a sport. I wasn't early to the game, but I bought this massive history of training across many different sports that allowed me to catch up very, very quickly. What I had as an advantage over majority of my competition was I knew how to race and Mm. I knew how to compete and I knew how to train. Um, I also knew what worked for me and what didn't work for me. So I spent 2011 literally using events across Europe as that had these minuscule amounts of prize money um, and I would have to turn up and win to make it to the next weekend but that was that was the game that I played it was like you're allowed to do this if you don't spend any money and you have to turn up and win to make it to the next weekend and I think if I won a series in France then it gave me a return ticket to Maui which 
um, mm. for later in the year, which allowed me to break the ticket up. So I was able to put California, Maui, Oahu, New York. I don't. I didn't even use the remainder of the return ticket, um, which opened up an entire other league of competition. Meant that I spent you know six, oh, close to a month in Maui learning how to go downwind. Did the Molokai to Oahu accidentally. Um, you know, like got third. Um, you know, it's like how the hell you do that. You know, a week after. Um, you know, not long after turning up and a bunch of things not really going right and having no idea where this far off island is in the distance, but somehow you're going to paddle there. And um, <laughs> what yeah, um, pretty... what was the what was the with the transition from? Did you just get sick of going back to you know doing winter doing a winter sport and then decide oh this. Uh, stand up paddleboard looks interesting. I'll I'll get into that. Or how did that how did that happen? That, no, that, that seems that, like a big difference between skiing, stand up paddleboarding. Where did that happen? Yeah, so that transition was very uh, abrupt. It happened when I was on my like year thirteen at high school, and it was a really shitty day at Mount Hart with boot top sludge, Norwest. We'd been, you know, sort of hammed in for three days trying to get a race series away and I didn't have let's just say that I I didn't need to go and take that extra run through the training course Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't make it through the training course Um, halfway down just over um, the really fun roller um, on the the GS and Super G course at Mount Hart uh, my Downhill skiing, I remember it was a right-hand turn. Um, it intersected with a rut from a training course, and I think my my ski went one way and I went the other way with mm. force, enough to snap my tibia in its boot, spiral fracture mm. my tibia, uh, fracture my tibial plateau, and uh, that sent me to Christchurch Hospital to get some rods put down it. That'll do it. But then it gets better because um, not only did that lead to a broken leg, but a month and obviously having surgery to um, fix it, I'll put it back together. But I also, a month later, I was back in the hospital with acute glandular fever. And as a teenager, I really pushed I pushed the needle way too far with way too many things and I didn't know when to back off. And I, mm. I can, was, the warnings were probably, you know, the red flags were coming up like a year prior um, when I got a virus and I really couldn't shake it. But, you know, mm. what, do, what do you do when you're the, you're the grinder? Um, you, you just keep working harder and it puts you in an even bigger hole. Um, and so I ended up with acute glandular fever, couldn't walk, couldn't go to school, life was pretty shit. Um, and then, you know, I ended up obviously having to have more surgery on my leg. I slowly got better. Um, I think I decided to go to university like the, the week before uni started. I called University College in Dunedin to see if they had any rooms and <laughs> someone had uh, decided that they weren't going to go to University College um, or to university and um, so a room had become available so that's how I ended up going to uni in first year. Um, not going to lie, um, 
post-viral stuff and chronic fatigue and the leftovers of glandular fever, really bad glandular fever, are debilitating to say the least. But then to cap it all off, uh, <laughs> I was fit, was, you know, rehabbing this leg, learning how to use it again. And I uh, decided that I was, uh, and I was obviously trying, this is the start of July, back on snow, you know, trying to pick up where I left off. I couldn't really ski more than a couple of days in a row without a nasty hematoma because the, the brake line was mm. on the buckle line in my boat. Yeah. And I uh, launched it a little too eagerly over a tabletop and uh, my right knee blew out on landing for the first time. So I was less than 12 months later back on crutches. Nasty. Three months later I was beating um, all of the New Zealand junior triathlon team at their training camp. <laughs> that was how I started riding a bike, um, which then threw me into the deep end of the high performance program for triathlon. Um, I really wasn't the fastest swimmer or the most natural swimmer, um, but I could ride like a demon and I could run like a cut cat when I needed to. Um, but I went through this horrific cycle of just every three months, something major would happen. And it was just this cycle of, rehab, recover, something would happen. Rehab, recover, something would happen. And by the time I was 23, 24, I think I'd fully blown my knee, had it reconstructed, blowing that out, had, you know, bucket tears removed. I was just basically a mess. And I was Mm. at the point when I was in my final year of varsity that uh, I need to go and literally use the one thing that is intact which is my head and so then ended up on graduate programs with multinationals and what obviously what, uh, got... sorry go ahead no no go i was gonna say looking back on that like that that three monthly cycle of, of blowing out what do you can you put that down to anything or like upon reflection yeah no i think there was a mat and look at it, it took until probably 28, 29 to really figure out why all that happened because it wasn't for a lack of drive. It wasn't for a lack of work. Um, I was, it was total self-sabotage of the fear of what if I didn't live up to my own personal expectations, but the, my perceived expectations of the people that I was around, selectors, coaches, everything like that mm. and that was I think debilitating but it was never discussed we were never given any tools to to deal with those kinds of pressure or really even given a I suppose a pathway um I was on the I was on the John Hellerman suck it up program <laughs> I have a lot to thank it for, but it definitely did break me in the process. This episode of the Exponential Performance Podcast is brought to you by Paddle Stronger, my latest strength training system for paddle sport athletes. Now, it doesn't matter if you're an endurance or a sprint paddler, whether you paddle K1, multi-sport, surf ski, waka armor, 
stand-up paddleboard or outrigger canoe this training system can be used by all paddlers to improve their performance through gym-based strength training it provides you the why the when the how and the what of strength training and steps you through step by step so you can come out of the end of it with a strength training plan that suits your goals and needs if you want to see how you can improve your paddling performance using gym-based strength training get your free inside view of paddle stronger over at exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash paddle stronger or find the link below in the show notes or the description depending on what platform you are listening now let's get back into the interview with annabelle anderson and so yeah it wasn't for lack of drive or focus or work ethic it almost sounds like that was unmanaged in terms of you only have it seems like you have one level and that's 100 percent of the one, time one speed yeah and it was um and it wasn't and it's that whole concept of your greatest strength can be your greatest weakness mm-hmm. um and it really probably gives me a huge amount of insight into it's one thing to prescribe um you know a a regime of training or an approach but what it truly comes back to is understanding what makes up a person and what will fit that person's personality absolutely to get the best out of them and i think people need to be held back and some people need to rock it up their ass yeah, and I was just thinking that, like, as a coach and a, a, a you know, or a strength and conditioning coach or an endurance coach, a lot of the time you're working with athletes, and it's not you're not as there as a motivational role of you know getting people going. Often as personal trainers are, but you're there as a strictly as a load manage like an external load management uh, governor to to more often than not hold people back so that you can get that long term long term result. Yeah, and I think where I struggled was that pathway was never the pathway from where I was to where I wanted to get to was never clearly mapped out. And mm-hmm. I've learned over time that I I like to I like to know what we're doing, why we're doing it. Um, but I needed the carrot of well, how are we actually going to get from point A to point Z? Mm. Because yeah, otherwise, it's like, why am I showing up? Yep. And I mean, if you look at that from, uh, you know, the eyes of a what we were at the time, uh, 19, 20 year old, uh, it looks like a lot of hard work. Like that's what yeah. you think that's what you should be doing. Yeah. Uh, and if you're not getting what you're after, well, more hard work should fix it, you know. And that's a that's a great model if you're uh, like any of the Chinese national sporting teams when you've got such a massive population that you can just keep throwing against the brick wall. Some will bounce back and those will be your champions, but you're going to break a lot of people along the way. And when you've only got one of yourself to break, uh, well, it sounds like you've tried a few times to do it, but uh, you, you've got to start being a little bit more sensible about it, don't you? Well, it was interesting the effect that it had because... As soon as I moved into a, a for sake of a better word, a professional and corporate life, I, 
I didn't want anything to do with competition. Wow, yeah. Apps, it were, and I think I had this, you know, sort of thing that ran through my head of knowing can stop me doing what I love to do. And mm-hmm. it was about putting the love factor back into the doing. And because competition had gotten in the way of like, I, I've always just loved the doing, loved the process, loved to train. And so I became highly, highly protective of no one can stop me doing what I love to do. Mm-hmm. And I had pretty full on um, high stress type jobs. And so physical movement, you know, in the morning and in the evening um, of some description became my coping mechanism. But because so much was being pulled in a professional sense, there was no way that I could pull for myself physically. Mm-hmm. And it was about respecting that the energy was being put into something else. So I couldn't draw from that in a physical sense. And I was okay with it. So I spent lots of time on boats and sailing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, wow. Still and rode, we, still ran. Yep. But and just for fun. We haven't even got to stand up paddleboarding yet, which no. which jumps out at me is really interesting that uh and I'm I'm trying to keep track of this timeline of your age in my mind and you're around about twenty five here. I'm I'm Yeah. Somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah, twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven. Yeah, that's quite, that's really late, eh? Like Yeah. Uh, so late. And there's not any of this early specialization None. happening. Well, you're specializing in skiing, but you know, you, you, that's not what you went on to become world champion at. You went on to become world champion as, as a, you know, stand-up paddleboard athlete. And you just had this amazing movement competency of all these different things that uh, maybe this model in my mind is going to come out that's going to then transfer on to, uh, you know, your stand-up paddleboard. But uh, go on. I'm just having a so thought out loud. Growing up, I grew up in a really remote part of the country. Um, the nearest neighbours were like half an hour, 40 minutes away. Where um, is this? Where were you? Um, we're on the east coast. My mum and dad were farming on the east coast of the Wairarapa. And wow. so I had, you know, my ponies, which mum had broken in, which, mm. you know, I think they've been bought as yearlings or whatever. Um, and so you became really resourceful because I only had myself to play with. I think my brother came along a few years later. And so, you know, you grow up having to look after, care for something, that's your mate. Um, you just do what, I suppose, you make something out of nothing. I never had dolls. I had a sandpit and I had my ponies. <laughs> I think I probably had a pet goat, a couple of pairs of sheep. You know, <laughs> kind of loved it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, in my formative years, I was just one of those kids that I loved doing. And I can remember really early on, like from about age of, seven or eight grasping the concept of we've got athletics coming up so I need to go for a run and be ready for it Mm. and it was the same with tennis of I wasn't the most gifted player but I would go and serve balls you know from one end of the court to another on repeat by myself if I didn't have someone else to hit with (laughs) and you know when it came to you know, the end of a two-day tournament and everyone's tired, well, it's fine, I'll just hit it where you can't and I'll be able to run down every ball. Um, And it was, I think, you know, a lot of that 
fitness was always my my tool that I could pull out of the kit. Um, and I thrived on it. Um, it was the basis of, I suppose, sort of like that very foundational thing. Um, you know, I wasn't an amazing runner, but I'm, I got taught to run. I started training with um, an athletics squad, I think at 13, 14, because it meant that I got out of prep at school. Um, and I didn't have to run around the, the 200 metre field at school in tomorrow, um, which was great. But it gave this one a very, an appreciation for the importance of technique, the importance of drills, the importance of intervals and why you need them. Um, and that very much provided this very, very strong foundation. But then laterally looking back, I worked out pretty early on that, you know, anything from two and a, I suppose like four minutes onwards was I can just hold a ridiculously horrible pace for a very, very long time. Um, so physiologically, you know, I can sit at a very, very high level of exertion. I, mm-hmm. had, I have to work on speed and power and explosion. Um, I really have to put the the time and the effort in on highly technical manoeuvres, but if I break down a process and step by step I can layer it and I'll eventually get it. Mm. But I think it was as much working out where my strengths were from all these different things, from athletics, from tennis, from basketball, from riding horses and understanding, you know, tennis, uh, sorry, skiing and understanding the importance of gear and why you have it and how you have to look after it and preparation um, that then when it came to, and then obviously I got five years of open, you know, both uh, a huge amount of sailing on pretty much every type of boat, you know, right up to super maxi size um, as well as offshore. So I got this you know, um, immersion into this very, very foreign environment if you come from a place like Wanaka, um, that when I stepped onto a board, well, I was already fit because I'd never stopped training. I knew Mm. how to race. I just kind of had to go and figure out the other bits. Then I spent 2011, and that was instead of getting a uh, highly skilled migrant visa to keep pounding the concrete jungle of London, um, it seemed more appealing. I I spent a year just doing the hard yards of competition and learning the craft of what this competition was made up of, what it, you know, what I needed to learn. And at the end of that first year, one, I got a ton of results, but I was just like, okay, time to go home and get serious. And I think mm-hmm. three months later was when, I lined up against, and it was in Auckland, I think it was King of the Harbour, which is the big surf ski race. Um, And it's Auckland Harbour is one of the trickiest pieces of water to read and navigate, um, as any American's cup or sailor in general will tell you. Um, But that was where I, you know, that was where I trained day in, day out. And I think I, I smoked the boys like by something <laughs> stupid, like five minutes. It was ridiculous. And then like a week later, 
in a, a more technical um, round the cans type situation, I smoked them again. Mm. And I was like, okay. And then for pretty much all of 2012, I just kept smoking boys on repeat. And it kind of became a bit of a, oh dear, what's, what has she done? And rather than being celebrated, it was very much, how are you doing this and what are you doing to cheat? Yeah, I'm not yeah. There that, was, tall, that tall poppy syndrome is alive oh, and well. Alive and well. Um, and I think 2013, yeah, 2000, so the end of 2012, start of 2013, no more racing against the boys, Annabelle. You're not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of killed it for me. I'm not joking. I can imagine. I think it's probably worth noting here that we're not talking about boys either. We're talking about, like, fully grown men. Yeah. Like, I think that discredits, like, your achievements as well. Oh, we're be- I'm beating the boys, you know. But it's – we're talking about men here. Like, you, sh- mm. you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. uh, it's not a case of, you know, you were an eight-year-old and you, you outrated one of the boys at the cross country. It's like we're talking fully grown men on, you know, that are training as well. Yeah, and it when I look back on it, it was, again – comes back to you know what we spoke about in those early days of of skiing of something mm. clicked skiing GS where I was able to use my physical capabilities but adapt it to the shape of the ski and read the hill and maximize literally just like ring every last piece of performance out. It was the same with reading the water. I was just like I just have to outread everybody else mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the things that people you know tend to forget of like when it comes to how you approach preparation or training for competition of how well prepared are you for every single environment you're about to be put into and so I would use it was also because I'd obviously been around many, many high-performance programs by this point in my life. And I knew that, being a good old New Zealander, uh, that the rest of the world came to us in their Mm off-season. And so I utilised that to my advantage And because I had never surfed a wave and I was embarking on something (laughs) that was 50% a surf sport as well as a paddle sport. God help you if you can't surf a wave. You are dead in the water. And so I used that to my advantage and just rolled straight into back-to-back summers. And I think I, I, I put in the massive hard yards for like four years of just relentless racing and competition to get the baseline skill set where it needed to be. But I would come back, and what most people didn't click on to was I had a weekly race series where I could test all my equipment that I would bring back from overseas um, and just put it in every condition in a race environment, and I could train on top of it because it's kind of like going and running your local 3K or your 5K. Um, If it's around 20 to 25 minutes, they hurt, but they don't hurt you physiologically. Mm. The rec- you can recover from that if you've got a decent 
fit, um, fitness and endurance base. And so, you know, by the time I'd go and line up my, you know, the first major race of the overseas season, which would always be the last weekend in April on the east coast of um, the States, I'd probably already been on a start line close to 30 times. Mm-hmm. And that's, there's no compensation for that. And I knew that I'd been in every condition. I knew exactly what the limitations and conditions of my equipment and different types of equipment that I could use. And so when I would go to these, you know, various different places, and obviously there's a huge amount of local knowledge um, and reading of conditions that comes in, I'd already been able to, I already would have been able to have done my homework, planned out what I need needed to take, um, and be able to show up with confidence that that gear was fit for the conditions. Yeah, I read that uh, you, you paddled across the Cook Strait on the stand-up paddleboard. Yeah, that was a bit accidental too. <laughs> like, I was gonna, like uh, if you're talking about tough conditions, that's probably uh, it's not known uh, as a gentle piece of water, is it? No, and it's how I ended up paddling from my base back to Spain as well, as you do. <laughs> Just needed a ride home and we missed Pretty the plane. Much. Um, Cook Strait was a cool one because it's one of those bodies of water that you get a 1% chance mm. to score the conditions that you need because there's this matrix of conditions, tides, um, you know, condition essentially atmospheric and the, the weather conditions as well as the, um, the tides that need to align at a certain time of the day for you to even have the prospect of a chance. And then... And we were, we'd been down surfing on the Otago Peninsula. We had a jet ski. We had a rescue sled. And I managed to um, stop off in Christchurch and convince the one person that I knew that could navigate um, to jump on and I would take him to uh, Tauranga for a surf comp and pay for his ticket back. And, and it was this beautiful thing of, I think we pulled it together in, like, less than 18 hours. Wow. It was like we drove through Christchurch, picked up Baxter, got picked in a couple of, you know, and a few hours later, you know, we're putting the ski in the water, it picked in, and obviously paddled across and then carried on. And there was a bunch of other stuff that happened after that that is probably best shared over a beer, um, <laughs> <laughs> like any good story. But we made it, and it was just one of those things of, um, you know, that's, that's kind of my why of just being fit enough and skilled enough to be able to say yes when opportunities present themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. The thrill of the chase goes a yeah, long way. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so we were gonna have a chat around development of youth athletes and and yeah. how that sort of links into sort of their long term development. What are your thoughts around that? I mean your background has been that very lots of different things and uh, you know 
obviously a few ups and downs on the way along the way as well. Uh, what are your thoughts around that, or how do you approach that? Um, with or what would you do differently next? You know, if you were to do it all again. If I was to do it all again personally, um, and I think what I, sorry, I'll reframe that. What I think now, if you'd asked me this 10 to 15 years ago, I would have said something quite different. Mm. Um, but that's the benefit of hindsight and maturity and experience. Um, of, I probably wouldn't change anything. I think the exposure to multiple different things, the nothing being very easy, mm-hmm. definitely no um, silver spoons handed out. Um, basically, you know, like I was good at skiing. I had everything there to make it happen, but, you know, it, it all comes down to the size of your parents' wallet once it gets to a certain point, and that ruled me out. You know, that was going to rule me out one way or another. So maybe, you know, the best thing did happen. Um, But sometimes you can't help what you're good at. And I feel that we constrain the talent of youth in this country with you either fit the mould of the system or you lie outside of that. And if you lie outside of that, my greatest fear is that we lose so many incredibly talented kids that never get the chance to realise their potential. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, some great points there. And, and I think that thing as well, like when you were ski racing and doing triathlon as well, the, the concept of becoming a world champion stand-up paddleboard athlete probably wasn't even in existence in your mind. I didn't even know it was a sport. It probably wasn't even a sport. It wasn't even invented. (laughs) Exactly. So, yeah, having that that in the back of your head, like, you know, I I heard something that uh, primary school children these days, something like 70% of them are going to work in jobs that aren't even invented yet, you know, that aren't a thing. And so the same sort of thing potentially, you know, in sports that not even – the, the realm of the possibilities not even in their head at the moment. No, but then you go back to the baseline things that make phenomenal, you know, essentially build athletic engines of, you know, some kind of ability to to move. So it's your, your swimming, your gymnastics, your mm. jiu-jitsu's, um, athletics, um you know, it's that run, jump, sprint, have spatial awareness. And if you have those fundamentals, you can then build on those fundamentals with structure and pursuit of, you know, a one, a more one-dimensional discipline, you know, eye-hand coordination, foot-hand coordination. Those were all things. Like I spent my formative years of being really little, you know, hitting tennis balls and stockings and cricket bats, um, Mm. you know, and with balls and stockings and stuff like that to develop eye-hand coordination. Maybe it was just a way of keeping us quiet, but for some reason, you know, I was one of those kids that loved doing that. If you gave me a a ball and a hoop, I'd go and shoot hoops for hours. I was never going to be tall enough to make a golf, you know, a golf shoot, but I could be a really dangerous goal attack and I could probably shoot from anywhere in the circle. And Mm. so... 
then I look at it and go, the fact that I knew how to sprint, that I knew how to generate speed, at the end of pretty much 90% of my races, I would have to sprint up a beach, and there was no way in hell that I was ever going to lose <laughs> a, you know, <laughs> never lose a sprint on a beach, and it's why even now I still do sprint drills, and it's mm-hmm. about that baseline acceleration over 10 steps of neuromuscular patterning. I probably don't have a need for it, but I know that if I keep that sharp, I'll be able to run better. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's that concept of building the pyramid wide as well with that skill yeah. base, isn't it? If you've got a really wide skill base, then you can you know, have a really high pinnacle uh, on on a bunch of different things. But if you've got a really narrow skill base, then you're only able to you know, have a very narrow peak, yeah. I guess. And I, I look back at, and it's, you know, God, I turn like 39 next month, which is a little bit scary. Um, <laughs> because I still see the nine-year-old, the 19 and the 29-year-old and myself. Mm-hmm. And I look at the kids and obviously like most of these, I would call them for better, I'll relate it to, to, to females. And my, you know, early teens and mid-teens, I can remember, you know, um, tennis coaches and administrators going, we really should put Annabelle into more of a program and have her a little more focused on that because she's got some, she's got some, you know, something that might need, you know, if she actually did something with it. But those kids, they hate sport. Mm-hmm. They all dropped out at like 14, 15, 16. These kids have thousands of hours of coaching and investment and time and effort and travel put into them. They don't even pick up a racket. And to me, that's the the really sad bit. Because if I can be 39 and still fizzing like a nine-year-old <laughs> at the concept of learning something or going and doing something... And then all these kids that was, you know, that was a lot better than me, mm. dropped out at 14, 15, 16 and hate it, you know, all got really broken. I'm just like, have we done a disservice to our youth in the way that we groomed their pathway? Yeah, for sure. And I think there's uh, like a lot of that happening, you know, especially now, and and also a, a little bit of a pressure, I guess, of sports competing with other sports to oh, totally. get and hold, uh, you know, kids or, or hold the families in the sports because at the end of the day, you know, it's a financial thing. Parents are paying money for coaching mm-hmm. and, and the rest of it. So they're all competing for, you know, a slice of the pie. And um, it's, it amazes me how much, how many organized kids things there are now and maybe they're just babysitting dressed up as, you know, sports programs um, at the end of the day, but they're all all looking to, you know, keep keep hold of kids um, in their sport, you know. Well, it's in there, and I think it's, it's twofold of we don't have a volunteer base as coaches now. And so on mm. the positive side, where the, the coaching is probably a lot more professional, um, but we've lost that connection of the family to the recreation and the sport and the doing. And it's very much, and I can remember because it, it was in my you know, like late 
it was in my teens and late teens when it all started to change and very much became a migration from a club-based system to a user pays system mm-hmm. of like, you can be part of this if you pay to play. And so, you know, it's been the death of the athletics and Harriet's clubs because, and it was the advent of the 5k kind of thing. It's like, Someone will pay to do this, but they won't go and do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was, you kind of look at it and go, yes, I think there's an element of, uh, I think there's also societal pressure in definitely in certain places um, of where, well, if your kid's not in this program that their friend is doing or that the people that you surround yourself are doing, then you're not giving your child the best opportunity um or is it you know is it social pressure that brings a lot of uh you have to be part of this soccer program or this tennis program or something like that and i'm like can we just let the kids kind of have fun Mm. because at the end of the day the amount of fun and enjoyment that they have and dare I say acquisition of skills because skills builds confidence which means that someone will likely continue something um, or be able to do it for a longer period of time Um, you know are we doing our kids a disservice by putting them off if Mm -hmm. we make it too serious I mean, that fun factor is the cornerstone of everything, right? Like, uh, right from grassroots level through to high performance, people do it because it's fun. And, I mean, you can say, well, at a high performance level, they don't do it because it's fun. They do it to win. I mean, winning's really fun um, as well, you know. And if that's what people find fun, then they're, they're going to do it. And I think it comes a time in uh, every person's life where, it stops becoming fun for whatever reason, mm. whether that be friends aren't doing it anymore or uh, time commitments for work and they don't, you know, don't have time to juggle or whatever it might be. It stops becoming fun and they stop pursuing, you know, even just exercise in general. Mm. But I think being able to, I think a lot of people get put off from a very young age because it, it's not fun anymore. Like I always cringe when I see, Kids just doing laps of the field at school for fitness. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like, that's not fun running around a field. How could you make it f- running fun? Play some damn games. Do you know Gamify. what I mean? Yeah, it's just like, I, I understand there's this whole physical, um, well, you know, there's the obesity epidemic and the inactivity. The way to fix that is not to make kids run laps of the field yeah. at school. It's... To, to let them have fun while they're being active. Yeah, and I think that now because, you know, when the likes of yourself and I grew up, we didn't have the concept of the device, which mm. oh, now sure. is we compete for the attention of children's time. Um, and so it's how do we embrace an element of technology, the concept of gamification, but, you know, I've had this conversation with a few teenagers over the last few months, and I love to kind of try and get inside their head and find out what's making them tick because mm-hmm. it, it changes so fast. Um, and, you know, 
they'll want an iWatch. But I'm like, do you know what you can do with that? And then I'll go, hey, let me show you something. And I'll open up the likes of Strava and go, do you realize that this is what this, this, this watch that you've now got on your wrist, this is what you can do? Mm. And this is, you know, because, and obviously they're quite motivated kids that, you know, for some reason, maybe it's um, for social communication, they want, and I watch for trying to go, um, but they would have validated it to the parents of like, but it's got like a fitness tracker, it's got this and that, I'm like, you know what, you know what this is actually for? Um you know, it's like, how do we marry the best of the new with the old? Mm, yeah, for sure. Um, and how do we keep things, most importantly, fun and engaging? And then I kind of look at, like, as we get older, you know, like the whole reason why we want to do things is a sense of community. Big time. And you just look at Strava as well, or, or Zwift, you know. Zwift mm. team race, like racing on Zwift yeah. and, and Strava. And Strava went and you know chucked uh, everyone off their platform essentially, unless they're going to pl- unless they're going to pay for it. I know everyone paid for it. They, you know <laughs> they love it, and it and the the only thing that it gives you uh, if you pay, oh, I've seen lots of features obviously, but the main thing is the leaderboard. Do you know what I mean? I and being able to see other people on the leaderboard, people are happy to pay for that. It's funny. And it- <laughs> So it comes back to, you know, what really drives behaviors. And mm. obviously my professional background is marketing and um, human behavior. And it's that bit that fascinates me of, and I just did a, a very random, you know, sort of bit of a focus, ran a bit of a focus group for the last few days of trying to really understand. Because I wanted a bit more of an, a sense of, what what devices are people using mm. for activity tracking and what they're syncing it up to? And it blew me away with the breadth of responses that I got. Really? And it was almost to the point of like, I'm mildly overwhelmed because I've known Strava since <clears throat> the outset. I have done research projects where it's been a really pivotal part of it from a mm. behavioral perspective. I know why I have a fake name and why I have a private account and it scares the living shit out of me that local people in this in this town where we live have stalked me and tracked me down. <laughs> and I'm not joking. And that yep. really scares me. Um, but then I kind of go, then I look at the, the sense of community of the very, very few small number of people that I've allowed into that my world of Strava mm. or just froth of seeing the maps of places when I upload a bunch of stuff. Yep. And I kind of got, oh, that's that's my that's my why I utilize and embrace this as a platform for that part of the community, not the other part. And so <laughs> it's and it came out in this research project we did for Giant, um, which was <laughs> fascinating of we had probably quite preconceived ideas of how people were interacting with technology and what kinds of technology people would value from a digital standpoint 
and it blew me away the variety of reasons that got shared the more really? we went you know the more we the more we interviewed people mm-hmm. the deeper and wider it got because i was just kind of like oh stravasis that's it <laughs> um, and I was so wrong. Um, and just seeing why people are prepared to pay or see value in something because none of these platforms can continue to exist in their current forms unless they turn them into profitable models because they've all been running at massive losses mm. for a considerable period of time until they've got a, to a certain point in development. And it's just even if you look at the likes of trading peaks, yeah. the the visibility of data, um, if you are on a the freemium version, yeah. um, or, you know, like you can have athletes on a free version, but if you're a coach, you can't see anything. You can't see anything that they're doing. So it's just mm. like, well, I see where you hook in here. Um, yeah, it's just, it's fascinating to see everything evolve. But then I go, do people actually understand the information that they're looking at? <laughs> So oh, I might man. not have a sports science degree, but I sure as shit understand most of it because <laughs> mm-hmm. you have to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's It always fascinates me how much people are willing to invest in a training device that they don't really understand. Yeah. And it essentially becomes a really expensive wristwatch or speed yeah. up on your bike, um, all for the sole purpose uh, sometimes of uploading it to Strava. Literally. You know what I mean? See those segment times. And, yeah, that's that's interesting. <laughs> so it's um, well, primarily since I um, decided that it was a great idea to fly off a mountain and fall a long way, which I don't recommend. Um, I've gone back to the humble, oh. the humble digital watch. Is that a Casio? Uh, it's actually a shark. Oh, here we go. <laughs> um, but when I look at it, like I... Because in those, and this is where the benefit of structured foundational training comes into play of, you know, in my early 20s, you know, late teens, early 20s, I did those blood lactate ramp Mm -hmm. tests to get heart rate training zones and train to them. And I can go by a feel. Absolutely. And every now and again, I'll throw a heart rate monitor back on for things, and but I can put it into a relative context of, well, I'm I'm either I've either been doing uh, a bunch of activity or I haven't. So yeah, this is and it's that ability to go by feel into pace, yeah. Um, that people just don't have. And they're like, but I need a power meter. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, for sure. Yeah, and it's but it's back to basics. Yeah, and and having that that again that such a wide training history that you have, and yeah. that being in tune with your body is such a fundamental thing to develop. Then you almost develop it because you have to because we didn't have all those technologies for you know for for a long right. time. And then when the technology did get brought in, you know it doesn't take long to get that that self regulation of of pace like it's. You know, it happens pretty quickly if you're in tune with it versus you're just going out there pushing start, yeah. smashing it to get your Strava segments and then pushing stop. 
and not actually using your training device to inform your training at all. Yeah. So that's why I always get confused with, you know, are people, you know, are they using the devices or these platforms for training or are they racing against a virtual world when they should be following what, you know, the basics of mm. what they need to do to be able to show up on race day. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, race in the virtual world, mm. <laughs> either on Strava in a 100% virtual world yeah. or uh, in a semi-virtual world on, on Strava. That there is more tempting than doing the basics. The basic, yeah. like There's no even the name, even the name, the basics. Yeah. Who wants to do the basics? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Boring. Absolutely. But it, it's the thing that creates, uh, you know, improved performance across the board uh, without failure. Like if you were to say one thing, you know, the, do the fundamental things. And I, I, I apply the fundamental training principles on a daily basis with Olympic athletes. And I I apply the same training fundamental training principles on a daily basis with weekend warriors. Get the same not the same results, but we get improvements. Yeah. And if you go back to that, but it's 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 hard to sell the basics. It's not as flashy as an app, you know. You are you are preaching to the converted on this one because it's it's not bright it's not a bright shiny object. Mm. It's pretty boring. I you typically have to do a lot of the same stuff. Um, there's typically a lot of repetition of pattern, and lo and behold, that's actually what gives you the the benefits to pull on. You know, the basic that sorry, the basis to pull on over time when you need it. But it's not that bright shiny object that mm. is going to give the instant gratification of others, and you know. Five, even five years ago, it was nowhere near as prolific at what it was now. So it's like, oh, you know, you might have, you might have, you you could you could download workouts five years ago. Yeah. But they weren't shared. No, no. And, and so it was like, oh yeah, okay, oh yeah, sweet as, um, you know, it was it was feedback, and there would be an element of objectivity to that feedback. Now that feedback has still has objectivity, but it's highly subjective to who is receiving it. Mm, big time. And I, I, I think about this concept of like the two different banks. If you had the opportunity to go and deposit your money in these mm. two different banks that gave you different return on your investments, which one would you choose? Would you choose the really boring bank that was potentially a little bit intimidating. You went and did the same thing. You filled out a little form by hand. You put your money in, gave you great returns. Or would you go into the bank that was super bright and shiny? Your mates were in there. It was super fun, but it didn't give you the same return on your money. I reckon 90% of people would still go into that bank that didn't give you the same return but it was fun and engaging and you had this little game where you deposited your money and you mm. came out of there feeling great. That there would be where people put their time and effort. And it's the same thing. Training fundamentals, um, you know, good base training phase leading on to a, a, speed, mm. a speed phase versus uh, social racing or, you know, Strava, um, virtual racing on Zwift. 
you don't get the same returns, but it's super fun. And it comes back to what we talked about with the kids, making them run around the field versus gamifying it, you know? Totally. And I think as adults, we don't, we don't have a good habit of making the boring stuff really fun. Mm. Um, You know, we don't, and I see people falling into the trap of oh, a classic on, on Saturday and I won't name the situation I was in or <laughs> what the person was um, you know, going to do. But it was the, obviously Saturday here was a, a really cold, grey day of inversion, um, pretty miserable. And I bumped into a gentleman I know very well he he goes, oh, I've got to go for a three-hour ride. And I go, it's a choice to go for a three-hour ride. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a choice. You have a choice. Um, and But it was literally that whole thing of I'm not sure whether he was trying to spark a reaction or a feeling sorry for it or whatever, but I'm kind of like if you know your why, mm. You'll be like, oh, I have to go for a ride. It's a bit cold. You know, we, you make the joke about I'm going riding and it's cold and how many layers do I need? Um, whereas I went out and rode later on on Saturday afternoon. I was like, I'm just going to go and ride single track, you know, where obviously you're climbing and it's in the trees and super, got views and it was super fun. And I was stoked. And I never even thought about, you know, oh, I've got to go for a three-hour ride. Mm-hmm. Um, but that whole concept of we we frame these negative connotations around I've got to do this or I yep. have to do this. Like, no, you don't. But if you want to do ABC or achieve XYZ um, at some date in the future, this will set you up to realise your true potential. Absolutely. And I mean, it's that get to. You get to go and ride for three hours versus I've got to do it. Yeah. And um, I I often, I had I have times when I don't really want to go and do something, uh, but I know that I should or it's on the program and it's really hard, it's really easy to talk yourself out of a program that you write, right? So like, yes, I I'll design my own training. Right, right. I don't need to do that. Need some recovery time. But I always, I had this thing playing in the back of my head of this get to versus got to. And then I work with a, quite a number of para-athletes mm. that literally they've got broken spinal columns. Their legs don't work, you know. And I was having this conversation with one of them one day and he was talking about what's it like up Mount Iron, like, I'd, I'd love to be able to go up there and, like, yeah. literally can't go up there. And I was just like, man, like, I can never complain about not going for a run up Mount mm. or, or or anywhere. It's kind of like this leg appreciation thing. You don't know what you've got, uh, you mm. know, t- attached to your lower body, essentially, until you don't have it. And it was a really powerful thing for me that, uh, these guys just got these these amazing work ethics and they're doing all these different things and then there's these simple things that they can't do and it's it just reinforces that I get to do this. It's a privilege to go mm. for a run. It's a privilege to go for a three-hour ride. Some people would do anything to be able to do that. Um, and, I mean, you can't always compare things, but, you know, perspective is a, is a grand thing to use when you need to. It really is, and I think that there's... And more, more so, um, obviously, 
in the southern region of New Zealand because we're a lot more affected by seasonality and weather and our cold temperatures of work with it rather than against it Mm. because we're not the winterless north i can remember my first winter in auckland going oh my god there's no frost Mm -hmm. i can ride in a pair of shorts in winter this is ridiculous um and just you know like how uh, game changing it was but then i look at you know how we embrace what's on our doorstep um embracing the seasons and understand you know and there's because there's points where it's just like i get really i'm really honest i get really cold there's not much point me being out in the cold with you know revoltingly frozen feet feeling as i'm walking on bones as soon as i Mm. clip out of my petals um but I know that I can go and have a hell, like a hell of a lot of fun, for up to about two hours, and so you just adapt and evolve with the seasons. But then saying that, if someone had said that to me ten, fifteen years ago, I'd be like, "But I have to. Mm-hmm. I have to go." And so there's an element of maturity, um, but then I think it comes down to the adaptation of a program to an understanding where it fits in somebody's life and their location and yeah. where they live. Like, you know, and that's where, like, the, the the smart trainers and stuff, I'm like, they're pretty game-changing. Like, oh, they are. You can get some serious quality and bang for buck with your time these days. Yeah. But absolutely. I really like running outside, so I haven't stepped on a trainer in a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, it's horses for courses, isn't it? And. It's just using things at the right time, not necessarily uh, time as a, as a general term, but uh, the right time for you as well to, to to keep moving towards whatever you're after, whatever that may be. And, I mean, mm-hmm. that's such an important thing. I get all these questions about what ses- what types of sessions should I do? Should I do this one? Should I do that one? It's, and not knowing the person at all, you know, just in, on internet comments and that sort of thing, it's like, well, what are your goals? Like, first and foremost, We're you know, backwards. I... Yeah, exactly right, because you can't, there's no one thing, you know, that this is what you should do, um, so it's really important. Now, I'm just really conscious of time, because we've been we're going over an hour now, and I don't want to um, don't want to take up too much of your time, because I, okay. I really value you being here, um, and I think it's kind of coming to a nice natural close, and that loop around that we talked about at the start, around that adapting and, and taking, uh, making the most of those opportunities, um, but what I just want you to leave the listeners with what would be your your most valuable piece of advice that you've learned over you know your career um, to this point what would be the most valuable thing that you could leave you know an athlete uh, whatever that might be about what they can do or what they can take away from from you your biggest learning Biggest learning, no one can ever take your fun away from you. Hold it and protect it and cherish it and guard it with your life. Yep. Because once you start to lose that, you actually start to lose everything. Mm. Yeah, that's nice. That's very good. And that oftentimes what gives you the greatest sense of joy may not be 
what someone else wants you to do, which can be really conflicting and confronting. Um, but if you're not true to yourself and true to why something brings you a huge amount of joy or why you started doing it in the first place, it'll be the one thing that unravels you. Yeah, and I think a lot of people kind of wander through endurance sport uh, not really knowing why they're there, uh, apart from they sort of get into it to punish themselves a little bit uh, for, you know, for being overweight or for, you know, for eating too much the day before uh, or to, you know, fill a void that they've got within them. And I, I think that can sort of lead them off down a bit of a dangerous path as well if you don't truly know what you're doing it for. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, Annabelle, thank you so much for your time. Can you let our listeners know where they can find out more about you and what you do if they want to, uh, if they've never heard of you before because, you know, you are in a little bit of a fringe sport, but where can I'm they find out more about you? I'm highly fringe and I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just, I just do, I do lots, I just do lots of things these days. Um, embrace embrace the fun um, or the fun of the doing um, you can find me over on the gram at Annabelle Anderson uh, there will be a lot of photos of out there doing everything from paddling to skiing to foiling to riding bikes to all these new sailing and wind sports which I've had the privilege of um, picking up over the last year um, Obviously, good old stalker book. <laughs> there is, uh, you know, it doesn't take much to find me. Otherwise, uh, there is some stuff on my website at annabelle-anderson.com. Um, but, yeah, it's it's really about the love of doing. It's pretty much my, my central governor. Always has been, always will be. It's just accidentally good at a couple of things along the way. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I'll put a link to all of your uh, online stuff over on Exponential Performance. I can't even say it. ExponentialPerformanceCoaching.com slash, I think we're up to episode 78. It might be 79. Really? One That's of those anyway. Movement. We've been, we've been chipping it away at it. But uh, I would highly recommend getting over and checking out uh, Annabelle's website because I did do a little bit of digging around, and there's some really cool stuff on there, especially some, I say surprised. Uh, I thought it was going to be terrible, but it was great. Now, uh, some epic missions that you've done, um, one to those crazy islands, I can't remember the name of them. The Pharaohs. Yeah, it was some, like an awesome little video, and... Then some crazy down river, uh, like white water stand up mm. paddleboarding, which I didn't even know was a thing. Oh, it is. <laughs> yeah, oh, like I've done a little bit, and I gave it a very little bit of white water kayaking, and um, it just it's next level when you do it on a stand up paddleboard. It's and I like to think that literally ten, eleven years ago, I had no idea that this stuff existed. Um, but being open to opportunity and understanding that, you know, we never know what is around the corner, um, but it was everything that I did in those formative years set me up to be able to step in when the opportunity presented. And it's the one thing I tell kids when I I talk in a mentoring capacity or 
have a chat to them of going like, hey, look, some of you are going to have the golden ticket. The path is carved. You're on your way. And for those that it's not, do not despair. You are still an epic human. Mm. <laughs> um, and there are many, many different ways that you will be able to carve your own path. It's just not as distinct as it is for others. Yeah, and I think that really stood out for me with, you know, what you were saying before is that you've been through all these different high-performance pathways, mm. uh, yet you didn't achieve, uh, you know, uh, high-performance status on all of them or any of them apart from the one that you made yourself. Mm. That's super cool and that it's almost like you took all of those different ones, merged them together, yeah. found what worked for you, and then just drove ahead with it. Yeah. It's all about building tools and mm. Learning from best case scenarios, worst case scenarios. Um, but first and foremost, there's always been a very, very strong love of the doing. It's, it's why I'm still, you know, it's why I'll still go back and do the basics of the most mundane things mm -hmm. because I know that that's what will allow me to move and get the best out of my body to enjoy a certain thing, whether it's skiing god i've been doing it on and i've been doing it riding bikes like since lockdown and man like it, it sounds ridiculous but i've had so much fun jumping my heart out mm. <laughs> and like full scene but it, it it's learning how to move your body in different ways shapes and forms and that expression is lifelong across many many different things yeah, that's interesting. And again, as well, that the whole lockdown process is is really reinforced that you get to do something. You know, yeah. when you can't do it, it's like, oh yeah, I kind of liked doing that. I kind of liked the three hour ride when I couldn't do it, but yeah. as soon as you can do it, it's like, oh yeah, you know, reframing. And so you also offer coaching of yeah. uh, multiple uh, different areas, but I think that the way that you do it really well is sort of this whole. I don't. Want, I hate the word holistic because it's kind of eerie fear and it, it makes me think about uh, different herbs and that sort of thing. Yeah. But I like the word whole as in holistic, like the actual meaning of the word yeah. holistic. I think it's just taken on a bad meaning. But mm. um, if you if people want to check that out, jump over to your website. You've got a little bit of stuff on there yeah, about it. Yeah, a little bit there. And they can contact you. But sort of give us a bit of a rundown on what of your coaching. What do you do with, with um, people? So Everything from, you know, returning to running um, to, obviously, if you want a performance program, I don't really go and shout from the rooftops, but I've won some of the biggest mountain bike races in the country um, and done a bunch overseas as well. Um, and it's, obviously, I spent four years on the high performance program for triathlon, so I kind of know a little bit about what it's like to swim, bike, run it. Um, for a period of time, um, whether it be across sprint distance, Olympic distance, half Ironman, etc. Um, but also where I probably have a skill set that not many people know about is in rehabilitation and mm. overcoming of injuries or repetitive strain things to get you back to enjoying the doing. I have been an incredibly broken human, more broken than I would like to um, admit, all through force injuries, not through repetitive stuff. Um, but I understand innately the process that 
gets you back to enjoying what you actually like to do. Um, and a lot of that is tied up in mental skills um, as well as um, the physical expression of what you can do rather than what you can't do. Um, and I, I would like to say an approach of a little bit of empathy, having been there a lot. Mm. Yeah, big time. And I think as well, like I uh, described at the, at the start, how do you describe uh, Annabelle Anderson? And it is an absolute legend. Uh, oh, like I say, not just a uh, stand-up paddleboarding legend, but I didn't even mention the mountain biking stuff, which I was looking through your website as well. I was like, you know, it's all there. And then um, we didn't even touch on it. There's a couple of little mentions to it, but your recent injury and rehab has been an ongoing mission by the sounds of it. And you, like you said, you've been there, you've done it, and if people, you know, want you know, someone to help guide them through the rocky path of, you know, a return to sport, you know, great option. Yeah, honestly, like the the recovery from a very, an exceptionally freak event instead of circumstance, um, I would rate that as far greater than any athletic performance I've ever put in. Mm-hmm. And I and, and like I say, we've we've been here for almost an over and almost over an hour and a quarter, and I don't want to hold you any longer. No. But I would love to get you back on to talk yeah. through that specifically, and then we've talked a lot of big picture stuff today, uh, and I think it would be very valuable to to dive a little bit deeper into some more specifics around yeah. training and that sort of thing if you were if you were open to yeah. that. I love talking about this kind of stuff. It's um. Essentially, it's what I've committed my life to doing mm. um, in some way, shape, or form. And there's no point having done this stuff unless you can take parts to that and or take the really valuable parts and share it with people that it can actually help. Because otherwise, what are you going to do? Like, bottle it up and go, you can't touch that. Um, you know, you get to a point where you have so much more to give than you have to gain. And I very much got to that point at the end of my competitive career, which I never really told anyone about, but um, I knew it was there. And I'm not saying that I won't compete in the future, but I just knew that that chapter, I'd given every single ounce that I could give at that point in time and that it was time to start to start giving some of that mm. to others awesome i think that frames our next conversation very well and i will uh we'll sort out a time to do that when uh we both have time but thank you very much for your time and uh i look forward to catching up again sounds great This episode of the Exponential Performance Podcast is brought to you by Paddle Stronger, my latest strength training system for paddle sport athletes. Now it doesn't matter if you're an endurance or a sprint paddler, whether you paddle K1, multi-sport, surf ski, waka armor, stand-up paddleboard or outrigger canoe, this training system can be used by all paddlers to improve their performance through gym-based strength training. It provides you the why, the when, the how, and the what of strength training and steps you through step by step so you can come out of the end of it 
with a strength training plan that suits your goals and needs. If you want to see how you can improve your paddling performance using gym-based strength training, get your free inside view of Paddle Stronger over at exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash paddle stronger or find the link below in the show notes or the description depending on what platform you are listening.